tonight we're going to be talking about the great King David. He's one of the greatest heroes of Jewish history, one of the most impactful personalities of Jewish history, but also someone, I think, whose story, or at least the skeletal outline of the story, is quite well known and famous. But I also think, as well known as it is, that is the degree that it is misunderstood and trivialized. So King David is anointed as the second king of Israel by the prophet Samuel and is considered the prototypical king of the Jewish people. He's a fierce warrior who battled the enemies of Israel and who earned the mantle of monarchy for his descendants forever. He is the one who captured Jerusalem. He's in fact the founder of the Jewish city of Jerusalem and is its namesake. The city is called, of course, Ir David, the city of David. And he also led the nation at its peak, at its zenith, when there was relative peace and consolidation and hegemony in the land. He, of course, authored the book of Psalms, the book of Tehillim, which until this day are the ultimate manifestation of the Jewish soul yearning for its creator and praying and beseeching him for mercy. The Talmud tells us, interestingly, that there are seven shepherds of the Jewish people. And these are Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, Moshe, Aaron, Joseph, and the last one is King David. Now, what this exactly means, what does it mean to be a shepherd of the Jewish people, is somewhat of a mystery. But certainly, it's telling us that David belongs in the highest echelons of Jewish leadership and accomplishment. If there was a Mount Rushmore of great Jewish leaders, you have these seven people, and amongst them is King David. But his life, as chronicled in the book of Samuel, seems to have been a never-ending string of difficulties and tragedies (coughs) and challenges and seemingly filled with moral and spiritual missteps. So what I want to do today is to look at his story and follow the timeline of the book of Samuel, but also intersperse it with lessons and insights and more detail, more background to the story from the Talmud and its associated works and hopefully create a complete picture or close to a complete picture of this great Jewish personality, King David. Tonight we're going to do part one, which is David's rise to monarchy. And next time we'll do part two, David as King of Israel. Now the book of Samuel begins with the miraculous birth of Samuel. His mother, Hannah, Hannah, was infertile for many years, and she prayed to God to have a child until finally God granted her request, and on Rosh Hashanah, she conceives, and she has a child, Shmuel, Samuel, and she decides to dedicate him to God, to Torah, to the Jewish people. And at the age of three, she gives him as an apprentice to Eli, the high priest, and he is going to grow up in the shadow of the greatest leader of the time, Eli Arkohen, Eli the high priest. And he's being groomed from a very early age to be the next great leader of Israel. Now, this is about 400 years after Moshe has passed, and the Jewish people are not doing so well. They're led by judges, a series of 16 judges. There is no king, and there isn't complete unity. The tribes are still having their schisms, and there's internal battles, there's external threats. The Torah knowledge is somewhat waning, 
And the Philistines, who are going to be a nemesis and a thorn in the side of the Jews for a very long time, they destroyed the tabernacle, they uh, captured the Holy Ark, and into this world comes Samuel, and he's going to be the great judge, the great warrior, the great teacher, the great organizer, and the great inspiration for the nation to make their next step to greatness. And in fact, in Jewish scripture, it equates Samuel, Shmuel, with the greatest leaders of them all, Moshe and Aaron. And under his leadership, Torah is going to flourish in the land, and the tribes are going to unite. And that would be amazing. And that's fantastic. The only problem is, is that Samuel's getting old. And who is going to be his replacement? Who are going to be his successors? So initially, Samuel appoints his own sons to be his replacements. The problem is, is that they were corrupt. They sought bribes. They weren't good candidates to fill their father's shoes. And the nation gathers together as one and tells Samuel, we want a king. And Samuel, in consultation with God, he tries to dissuade them. It's a bad idea. The king collects taxes. There's so many different ways they could go wrong. They insist. They want a king. And finally, God tells Samuel, accede to their demands. Let's find a king. And the king that God directed Samuel to select seems like he was made in a lab to be the king of the Jews. Saul, Shaul, the first king of Israel, was exceptional in every way. He was taller, stronger, more handsome than all of his peers. He was a great tzaddik, very righteous, a world-class Torah scholar, exceedingly humble. He seems like he's the ideal candidate. It's an interesting story uh, that's told, I think it's chapter 9 of the book of Samuel, how they actually met, because Saul is set on a mission by his dad to go find missing donkeys, and he's looking for them, and God tells, concurrently, God tells Samuel, next day, there's an individual from the tribe of Benjamin, which is the smallest of the tribes, he's going to come to you and he's going to be the king. And voila, the next day, Saul arrives, and he's from the tribe of Benjamin, and they have this encounter. And Samuel pours oil over his head, he anoints him, you are the king of Israel, he tells him what's going to happen, where he's going to go, who he's going to meet. Everything happens exactly as Samuel predicts. Saul is transformed. He's given a spirit of prophecy. And now Samuel organizes a national coronation of the new king. Now Saul is exceedingly humble. And he, he's hiding. He's not, he's not promoting himself as the new king. And when he is coronated, the, the whole nation gathers together and Samuel tells them, okay, we're doing this. We have a new king. And he points to Saul. And most of the people are very impressed and they give him gifts and they, they accept his leadership. But of course, there's a few snarky people who's like, yeah, this guy's going to be the king. I could do a better job. Who is he? But very quickly into Saul's reign, he proves his worth, and he silences his critics. The land of Israel is invaded by the nation of Ammon, and Saul, with the ability of a natural leader, he deftly organizes and mobilizes a national army to repel 
the invaders, what does he do? He takes two oxen, cuts them up into little bits, and sends them to every neighborhood in Israel. And he announces, you conscript and join the army of the Jews, or I will do to you exactly what I did to these oxen. A king needs to assert himself and, and unify his people. And as one, the book of Samuel describes, as one, they united and took on their enemy. And Saul splits the people into three armies. They enter the camp at the approach of dawn, and they struck down Ammon by the time the day became hot. There were survivors, but they scattered. There did not remain of them two men together. It was such a complete victory by the Jews that this mighty army of the Ammonites that had gained up against the Jews, there weren't even two people that were taken. Everyone was just scattered and on their own. So now everyone realizes that Saul's the real deal. We finally have the king that we've been hoping and yearning and praying and asking for. And then we look back and we see those snarky individuals who rejected Saul's authority. And they come over to Samuel. Who is it that says, will Saul reign over us? Give the men over and we will put them to death. Let's get rid of any mutiny, any rebellion. Saul is the undisputed king. No one should have questioned him. Whoever did is going to die. But Saul shows mercy. What does he do? Let no man be put to death this day. For today Hashem has brought salvation to the land. Samuel gathers the whole people again. Let's renew the kingdom. They bring offerings to God and everything seems to be perfect until it's not perfect. Saul's monarchy was indeed unquestioned, but very soon afterwards, he starts making grievous blunders. And in fact, the great king of Israel, Saul, the first king of Israel, maybe the most talented king of Israel, his reign only lasted for two short years. His first mistake God tells him, attack the Philistines. And he demurred and he delayed. And he allowed his soldiers to disband. And he was left with those small group. He sent everyone back to their homelands. And eventually they did attack. And despite the numbers being heavily stacked against them, they defeated the Philistines. Saul made another mistake. He did not maintain control over the aftermath. And the people were so hungry after this long war, they grabbed all the booty and all the animals of the Philistines and they slaughtered them and they didn't wait to like clear out all the blood and they started eating non-kosher food because the food was marbleized with the blood of the animals. And that, of course, is a terrible sin mentioned many times in the Torah that we're not allowed to consume blood. So again, God, God gets angry with Saul. Is this a Jewish king? What's happening? How was he allowing these sins to be perpetrated amongst his people, amongst his soldiers. And initially, God tells him through Samuel, you're still king, but it's not going to be passed on to your descendants. You're not going to have the kingdom for eternity. That's the first thing he lost. But the fatal mistake that undid and derailed his monarchy was what happened with the war against Amalek. Amalek, of course, you'll remember, right when the Jewish people left Egypt, they were attacked by no one. They were feared by all, with the exception of Amalek. There was one nation that's antithetical to the Jewish people, 
they attacked us when we were most vulnerable, uh, despite the fact that everyone knew that we had God on our side. And we're told several times in the Torah, we have to destroy Amalek. They are our national nemesis. And chapter 14 of the book of Samuel begins very unambiguously. Samuel said to Saul, Hashem sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. So now hear the sound of Hashem's words. So said Hashem, master of legions, I have remembered what Amalek did to Israel. The ambush he emplaced against him on the way as he went up from Egypt. Now go and strike down Amalek and destroy everything he has. Have no pity in him. Kill man and woman alike, infant and suckling alike, ox and sheep alike, camel and donkey alike. No ambiguity whatsoever. Very clear instructions. Decimate and destroy and get rid of every shred of Amalek. And Saul seems like he did the right thing. He wages war with Amalek and he's very victorious. But he takes pity on the king of Amalek, Agag, and doesn't kill him right away. And he spares the cattle and the livestock and the animals of Amalek too. And God tells Samuel, I'm done. I'm done with Saul. He is no longer king. Now, Samuel tries to intervene. He tries to pray. He prays the whole night. He cries the whole night. He tries to get God to forgive Saul and maintain the monarchy under his helm. But God says no. And now Samuel has to do the most uh, uncomfortable human resources conversation of all, where you go over to the king that the whole nation adores, who just won an amazing battle with Amalek, and you got to tell him, sorry, buddy, you're being fired from your job. And Saul is totally unaware of the terrible mistake that he did. When Samuel arrives, he greets him. Blessed are you to Hashem. I have fulfilled the word of Hashem. Saul doesn't realize that he made a mistake. And Samuel tells him, don't I hear the baying of the sheeps? What is it that I'm hearing? Why did you keep the animals alive? So Saul tries to justify it. I said, well, I wanted to bring sacrifices to God. We destroyed all the other animals. We destroyed all the people, but we wanted to bring sacrifices. But Samuel tells him, like Hashem said, go destroy the sinners Amalek and wage war with them until you have totally decimated them. Why did you not obey the voice of Hashem? You rushed after the spoils and you did what was evil in the eyes of Hashem. Saul responds, but I did heed the, hear the, heed the voice. Of, I did destroy Amalek and the animals were just going to be my sacrifices. So Sam is like, you don't get it. Does Hashem delight in elevation offerings and feast offerings as in the obedience to the voice of Hashem? Are you equating listening to God with bringing sacrifices? It's much better to listen to God than to bring sacrifices. Because, and this is the final thing. Because you have rejected the word of Hashem, he has rejected you as king. Saul tries to repent. I have sinned. I have transgressed. Forgive me. I'm going to go pray to God. Samuel tells him, I'm sorry. It's not going to work out. You are being rejected. You are no longer king over Israel. Samuel turns to leave. Saul tries to grasp him. He pulls his garment and ends up with a little bit of garment. And Samuel turns around and tells him, just like you grabbed that garment and it tore off, so too Hashem has torn the kingship from you on this day and he's given to someone who is 
better than you. God doesn't lie, doesn't relent. He's not human. He's not feeble. Samuel seizes Agag, decapitates him, and sets out to find Saul's successor. And of course, spoiler alert, that's David. And David is almost the polar opposite of Saul. In fact, his actual pedigree as a Jew is in question. It's not just the question, is David a legitimate king or not? The question that was posed in his lifetime, is he even even a legitimate Jew? Why? Because his great-grandmother was Ruth. And Ruth was a Moabite convert. And the verse says that even if a Moabite converts, they cannot marry a Jew. It's a verse in the Torah. However, it only applies to male converts from these tribes. But female converts, like in the case of Ruth, if they they are indeed allowed to marry amongst the Jewish people and their progeny is totally fine. But during David's lifetime, when he became somewhat of a contender for distinction, they were about to make a public declaration that David is not allowed to even marry a Jewess because his great-grandmother was Ruth the Moabite convert. And only through some last-second decisions of the high court of the Sanhedrin was a ruling rendered for all to hear that only a male convert from these tribes is not allowed to marry the Jewish people, but not a female. And therefore, David is totally fine. And it's interesting, like, David is going to be the king of the Jewish people. And all future kings are going to be his direct descendants. And right away from the beginning, we don't even know the most basic qualification of being even part of the Jewish nation, much less being the Jewish king. We don't know if if David checks that box. And it's interesting that there is such a, a pattern that we see throughout Jewish history with, with respect to great leaders, and especially great leaders who are going to orchestrate redemption. Of course, Moshe, he grows up in the house of Pharaoh. He could very easily be labeled as a traitor, as someone who didn't, he didn't suffer with the whole nation. He grew up in the lap of luxury. He's not one of us. That, that's an easy argument to make. He's going to be the one, someone who's Pharaoh's stepson is going to lead the Jews out of Israel. Who would have thought? Nobody would have. Judah and Tamar, of course, that story, which is the story of the antecedents of King David and the Messiah, that's a it's a terrible scandal. Judah, his daughter-in-law gets dressed up as a prostitute and seduces him, and he almost has her executed, and she has twins, and those twins are going to be the forebears of, of Messiah. That's a that's a scandal. That's not the way you would draw it up. And of course, King David, the forbearer of Messiah, who's going to be the king of Israel for all eternity, he needs the court to actually vindicate his Jewishness. And of course, as we will see in the rest of the story, he's going to have some apparent scandals of his own to address. So we meet David as a shepherd living in Bethlehem at the age of 28. 
Saul is still ruling as apparent king, but in God's eyes, he's king no longer. And God tells Samuel, go to the house of Yeshai, the house of Jesse, and one of his eight sons is going to be the next king of Israel. So Samuel makes the trip, travels to Bethlehem, meets Jesse. One of your kids is the next king. Fantastic. He lines all seven of them up. And Samuel inspects each one of them and says, no, not this one, not this one, not this one. One to seven. We don't have a winner. Is there any more sons that you possibly have, he inquires? Yeah, but he's not your guy. I know that for sure. Let me see him anyhow. And of course, they call David the eighth son. They pull him out. He's out in the fields with his father's flock. He's somewhat of an outcast, even in his own family. And of course, he is the guy and he is coronated. Now, it is interesting that David's father, Yeshai, Jesse, was a special man in his own right. The Talmud actually lists four people that died only as a result of Adam's original sin. When Adam sinned, Adam condemned humanity to die. And therefore, all people die. However, most people, they die because of their own sins. There's only four people, says the Talmud of the book of Shabbos, that they die because of Adam's sin. They die because they had to die because humans have to die, because they didn't sin on their own. And one of those is Yishai Avi David. Yishai, the father of David. Jesse, the father of David. Just for curiosity, the other three are Benjamin, the son of Jacob, Amram, the father of Moshe, and Kilav, the son of David. And what is interesting is that each one of these people had either a father or a son that was much more famous than them, yet they were the ones who were free of sin. Now, David is out in the fields. So the commentaries suggest, why did David not join? The rest of his brothers are called in. All the sons of Jesse need to show up and line up here for Samuel to inspect. One of them is the king. David opts to stay outside. And this is one characteristic that we see about David again and again and again. He himself does not consider himself a good candidate for king, and of course, neither do his brothers. And this is the first example of many, many examples that we see where David is an exemplar of of humility. There's a famous teaching in the Talmud that looks at some of the great leaders of our history and examines some of their statements. And the way it's presented is God is taking pride in his people. Why? Why? I gave greatness to Abraham. What does Abraham say on himself? Va'anochi afar va'efer. I am but dust and ashes. Humility. Moshe and Aaron, of course, are great leaders. And what do they say? Va'nachnu ma. What are we? We're nothing. David, the king of Israel, what does he say in the book of Psalms? And Psalm number 22, verse 7. Va'anochi tola'as ish. I am a worm, not a man, the Talmud elsewhere points out, David lowered himself, made himself small, both when he was a nobody, a no-name, undistinct in every way, and also once he became king of Israel, the most powerful Jew alive, he still lowered himself, he still embraced humility. 
There's another story brought down in the book of Moed Cotton that also demonstrates his humility. And it says that when his teacher was alive, his teacher would sit on the chair, on the comfortable chair and give a lecture. And David would sit on the floor and listen. And even after David became king, he would submit himself to his Torah teacher. Well, after his teacher died, who is giving the lecture now? It's David. And they say to him, okay, why don't you go sit up on the throne, on the important chair, like your teacher did? He says, no, I'm going to stay sitting on the floor. And God, so to speak, said as a result of that, because you lowered yourself, I'm going to give you power. I'm going to allow you to annul decrees. And we see David, with his prayer, is able to invoke God's mercy and God's compassion and God's kindness like no one else before and no one else, of course, since. And if you read any chapter of the Psalms, his relationship with God jumps off the page. We see his inspirational, spiritual love of God and closeness to his Creator, and which is why, uh, for good reason, when we pray, we try to channel his relationship with God in our own prayers by using his words. So David is shepherding his father's flock, and all the while he's deepening his relationship with God, and he's unknowingly preparing himself to be the shepherd of the Jewish people. There are, of course, hundreds of examples of psalms and other teachings that show David's special character. I'm going to share a few of them here with you. There's one prayer that David says, Baruch nafshi et, et Hashem, let my soul bless God. Five such prayers. Says the Talmud, why does David have five special prayers of let my soul bless God? What, what was David trying to teach us? There's five similarities between God and man's soul. And therefore, it's appropriate for man's soul to bless God. What are these five similarities? Just like God permeates the whole world, so too the soul permeates the whole body. Just as God sees but is unseen, so too the soul sees but is unseen. Just like God gives life and vitality to the whole world, so too the soul feeds the whole body. Just like God is pure, the soul is pure. Just like God is in the inner chambers, so too the soul is in the inner chambers. Therefore, it's appropriate that the soul of man should bless God. David, of course, was someone who was able to use his emotions to convict, to deepen and, and develop and nourish and sustain his relationship with God. Another example, a verse in Psalms 119 says, I woke up at midnight to thank you for your righteous judgments. What does this mean that David woke up at midnight? So there's two opinions in the Talmud. Either he would only he would sleep till midnight and then study Torah till the morning, or he would study Torah till midnight and would sing praises of God till the morning. But the Talmud says clearly he was never sleeping the whole night. He was always involved in furthering his relationship with God. According to the opinion that he woke up at midnight, how did he wake up? How did he know exactly when midnight was? So the Talmud says, David was a musician and he perfectly placed his harp above his bed in a way that the, when midnight come and would bring a special wind, it would play his harp. 
and that would wake him up with the iron will to get up and to praise and pray to God until dawn. And one last example that really shows David's special relationship with God is, of course, Psalm 23, which we traditionally chant every Shabbat afternoon, three times, a psalm for David, Hashem is my shepherd, I shall not lack. And, of course, you read it, very famous verses, Though I walk in the valley overshadowed by death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come from me. You prepare a table before me in view of my tormentors, etc., etc. So Samuel meets David. And David doesn't seem to be quite remarkable. David's a redhead, we're told, with fair eyes. Says the Talmud, what does this mean? David's a redhead. Who cares what hair color David had? Says the Talmud, is that when Samuel saw his red hair, he hearkened back to the first redhead, Esau, Esau. Esau was a murderer. And then he sees David. This is supposed to be the next king, but look at his hair. He looks like Esau. Maybe he's going to be a murderer too. And then he sees his fair eyes. The eyes. The eyes are a reference to the eyes of the nation. The Sanhedrin. The Torah leadership of the people. He sees his eyes and he realizes, yes, David will be a warrior. David will be a murderer. But he'll only do it within the confines of Torah. Only as per the direction of the Sanhedrin. And therefore, he indeed is a worthy candidate to be king. He takes the oil to anoint him. The oil begins to bubble, he pours it on his head, and now all the people in the room, David, David's siblings, and Samuel, no one else, of course, yet, they know that David has been coronated as king of Israel. It's going to be a long time before Saul stops acting as monarch and David consolidates his rule. From that point forward, David and Saul's life are going to be helplessly intertwined. Because God departs from Saul, Saul begins to have bouts of depression. The Spirit of God is slipping away from him, and he needs someone to cheer him up. So they suggest, we know this young man, very talented, very pious, very wise, gifted musician, David. Maybe he could be there to help you, encourage you, and inspire you. So David now is going to be in the palace, working with Saul helping him with his depression. Now at the time, even though the Philistines were previously defeated in a battle, they are inciting a new campaign against the Jews, and now they have a new weapon. They have a 10-foot giant named Goliath, Goliath. And he's enormous, and he's massively armored, and he presents himself as the champion of the Philistines. And he challenges the Jews, as was common in ancient warfare, nominate a champion to fight him. And of course, the Jews are getting demoralized. No one wants to have their head squashed by this monster. There's no volunteers. And Saul's getting desperate. And he promises, whomever kills this giant will be awarded with great riches, and I'm going to give you one of my daughters as a wife. David was not considered a warrior at all. His older brothers were. And they're at the front line, and David was sent as an emissary to deliver a package to his brothers fighting the Philistines. And he gets there, and he hears this whole hubbub. 
We need a volunteer. We need someone to fight Goliath. We need someone to take on. Whoever takes on is going to get all these great stuff. And David says, sure, I'll, 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 I volunteer. You're going to fight Goliath? And even Saul tells him, what are you doing? You're out of your mind. You're crazy. You're going to die. And David responds, Hashem, who saved me from all the previous dangers, from the lion, from the bear, he'll save me from this uncircumcised Philistine. Saul says, okay, you want that? Go for it. So Saul takes his armor and puts it on David. And miraculously, it fits. And we know, the verse is quite clear, Saul was the largest Jew. And he suddenly sees that his own clothing, the garments of the king, they suddenly fit the relatively smaller David. And Saul begins to be a little bit suspicious. But David says, you know what? I don't even need your garments. I don't even need your armor. I'm not scared of him. I'm going to slay this uncircumcised beast without any armor. I'm going to just use a slingshot and a couple of stones. Goliath is excited to finally have an opponent. There's some pre-battle drawing back and forth. Goliath approaches with his mammoth sword. David is concealing his slingshot, just a guy there, a little kid, a little redhead with nothing, no armor, with no sword. He pulls out a slingshot, slings the stone deep into the head of Goliath, seizes Goliath's sword, chops off his head, and holds it up for all to see. The Philistines, they see their hero decapitated, they're petrified, they flee, and they are routed. David is the hero. Saul killed thousands of Philistines, but David, he destroyed tens of thousands. He is promoted. He befriends Jonathan, who is the son of Saul, and is paraded throughout the land as a hero. And Saul's paranoia and Saul's suspicion and Saul's envy is only increasing. And he wants to just get rid of this problem. So he starts target practicing with some spears. And he whiffs one right at David, kill him. And David happened to move his head out of the way. Fine. Happened again. And again, David turns away just in the nick of time. Saul realizes that God does not want him to kill David. So he says, okay, I'll come up with some other plan. I'm going to use a proxy. He tells David, yes, I told you I'm going to let you marry my daughter, but I want you to prove yourself. I want you to deliver for me a hundred foreskins of Philistines. Go kill a hundred Philistines, bring me the foreskins, and you could marry my daughter. And David shows up not with a hundred, but with two hundred foreskins, and he marries Michal, the daughter of Saul. And she loves him. And this only increases Saul's paranoia and fear of David. And Jonathan's trying to mediate, trying to solve this problem. And he says, let David be. But again, David has another heroic victory over the Philistines. And Saul tries to kill him again. This time, when David sees Saul winding up with the spear, he says, I'm out of here. And he flees. And this time, Saul is dead set on killing his son-in-law. 
and he sends soldiers after him. And David is in his home with his wife, Michal, and she looks out the window and she sees that Saul, her father's soldiers are there, and she finds out that they're there for David. So she goes to the back window, she lowers him out, and he escapes. She walks up to the front and she says, well, my, my husband, he's ill, he's, he's sleeping. So they'll sit and wait. Finally, Saul is frustrated. What's happening? Where is David's head? I want David's head. He calls back to those, well, he's ill. Find out what's going on. They find him, they walk in and they find that there's a mannequin in, in, in David's bed. It's not even David. He's escaped. He's gone. So quickly, Saul discovers Michal's deception and what's the deal? Why did you help David escape? Well, she tells him, listen, he, he told me if, if I don't help him escape, she, he's going to kill me. And Saul's, Saul buys that and continues his relentless pursuit of David. He sends multiple waves of soldiers to try to seize David, and none of them are successful. He decides to go himself, and that doesn't work out either. Jonathan tries to intervene and speak some sense into Saul. But Saul refuses to let David off the hook. David flees and continually and relentlessly and unwaveringly and unyieldingly, Saul pursues him. David finds refuge in a town of Nob. He also hides in caves and forests and fortresses, all the while with Saul in hot pursuit. The town of Nob, a town full of Kohanim, of priests, they unwittingly helped David. They gave him some food and some provisions. And Saul's rage and paranoia just increases and he goes after the whole town of Nob and slaughters them because they helped David and therefore they rebelled against him. And there's only one survivor who would manage to escape from that inferno. Now amidst this pursuit, the Philistines attack and Saul is momentarily redirected to address that threat. And after defeats, defeating them, he goes back to chasing David anew with renewed vigor. Now, amid the hunt for David, Saul is with all his soldiers and with all his generals, and they're all on the lookout for David. He's somewhere in the, the area. We don't know exactly where. Saul's to go to the bathroom. And as a testament to Saul's modesty, he goes into an abandoned cave alone to relieve himself. The problem was that the cave was not abandoned. In fact, David, with all his loyalists, were hiding in the far ends of the cave. And they see Saul walking in, unaccompanied by guards, totally at their mercy and vulnerable. And the men want to pounce. Let's kill Saul and install you as king. But David refuses to allow his men to kill Saul. Instead, stealthily, quietly, he goes to Saul's garment. And without Saul noticing, he cuts off a small edge of his garment. The Talmud tells us, interestingly, just how harshly the righteous are judged. David defaced and devalued clothing. Therefore, in the very first chapter, very beginning of the book of Kings, David's old and he's cold. And no matter how much garments they give him, he can't get warm. Why does David suffer in the cold? Because of this episode where he didn't value clothing, was snipped a little bit off.
But of course, he didn't do it for no reason. Saul leaves the cave, totally oblivious to who's there with him, and rejoins his men. And David comes out of the cave at a safe distance, and he shows the bit of cloth, and he holds it up in the air. He says, I don't know why you're pursuing me with such intensity. I'm loyal to you. I'm pledging my allegiance to you. I don't want, I could have killed you very easily, and I didn't. Let's stop this madness. And Saul is, is moved by this. And he, he's, he's shaken by this. And he apologized. And he's remorseful. And he's sad. And he says, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna touch you. But please, after I know you're gonna be my successor, don't kill my descendants. David agrees. David swears on that. And the chase was called off, at least for the moment. David keenly recognizes that Saul's behavior is somewhat erratic. He doesn't settle down. Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows when Saul's depression will inspire him on another chase? He remains a fugitive. He marries various women, but Saul disputes his marriage to Michal, even though she is David's rightful wife. He marries her to a different person, to Palti bin Laish. But they, in an act of supreme righteousness, they do not consummate their marriage because they both believe that she's already married to David. The Talmud gives a very uh, graphic description. They placed a sword between his bed and her bed and said, whoever crosses the line is going to be stabbed. And they managed to, even though they were married for years and years and years, they did not consummate their marriage. After some time, Saul resumes his pursuit of David. And David's whereabouts are betrayed. And once again, Saul's within striking distance. And again, David is able to assassinate him. He infiltrates the camp and he finds everyone in deep sleep. And he has Saul right there. He could very easily kill him, but he refrains from doing so. Instead, this time he takes Saul's spear and Saul's water flask and retreats to his camp. And from a distance, he starts making noise and he awaits the camp. And again, he shows them what he has. I have his spear. I have his flask. Why is he so doggedly pursuing me? And he even chastises Avner, who is the general, who's Saul's general. He tells him, it's your job to protect the king. And I could have killed him. Make sure you do your job better. Again, Saul recognizes his error. David sends back the spear and the two of them don't meet again. After this encounter, David decides to go to the Philistines, to a various group of the Philistines, and he says to them, listen, Saul wants me dead, I'll be loyal to you. And they believe that, they make him a high official and a confidant, but when they go attacking Saul again, going to attack the Jews, they say, David, you're not really a true Philistine, you're loyal to the Jews, we don't want you to be part of this campaign. So along with his 600 loyalists, David heads back to his camp and to find that the camp, with all its people, with all its booty, was attacked by the Amaleks. And all the women are taken captive, all the children are taken captive, and all the booty was plundered. So they follow the trail, and they catch up with the Amaleks, and they smite them all, and they recapture all the booty and all the people, plus tons of Amalek booty, and David shares it, 
not only with the warriors that went to battle, but even the people that were guarding the supply line and with his allies back in Judah. In the meantime, the Philistines are being quite successful with their war with Saul. They managed to kill Saul's three sons, including Jonathan. And when Saul is surrounded by enemies, commits suicide to avoid being tortured by them. They take Saul's head, sever it from his body. They bring it to their pagan temple. They nail it up there. And when David finds out that Saul dies in a pattern that repeats itself many times throughout his story, he starts crying and mourning and lamenting the death of Saul and the death of Saul's sons. The book tells how there was a daring rescue attempt where they managed to, uh, a group of heroic soldiers managed to infiltrate this pagan temple and get Saul's body and allow it to be buried with respect. And David meets those people and lauds them and thanks them for this dramatic rescue. Saul's dead. David is accepted by many as the king of Judah, but that, of course, is not universally accepted. Saul has a son, after all. His name is Ishbosheth, and he's made a king as well. And once again, there's two camps. There's David's camp. It's much stronger than it was, but there is the loyalist to Saul's family and to his son. And each one of them has their own general. Saul has his general Avner. David has a general Yoav, and there's a near civil war between Jews. But progressively, the power is tilting in David's favor. And then Ishbosheth, Saul's son, alienates Avner, and he joins David's side. So now all the military might is with David, and he brings Michal, David's rightful wife, and gives it back to him, and they begin to rally the countrymen to David's side. So now the two erstwhile foes, Yoav, who was David's right-hand man, and Avner, who was previously Saul and Ishbosheth's right-hand man, now they're on the same side, but they're still enemies. And Yoav, the original general of David, he returns from battle and finds out that Avner, who until yesterday was David's sworn enemy, Avner visited the camp and Avner wants to join the team. And he suspects a trap. So he tricks Avner to come back to the camp and he stabs him to death. And that, of course, is a tremendous tragedy because Avner is one of the heroes of the Jewish people. He was the general. He was the military man of Saul, the king that everyone loved. And now he was murdered by David's man. And therefore, people are suspecting that David was an accomplice, was a conspirator in this murder. And in fact, David, bucking the trend of kings, he participates and cries and mourns in the funeral of Avner to show that this was not his doing. Yoav is going to remain part of the story for a long time. But before David dies, he's going to tell, tell his son Shlomo, you have to avenge Avner. You have to get back at Yoav. He is dangerous. Meanwhile, Ishbosheth is assassinated, and at the age of 37, David becomes the undisputed king of the Jews. If his rise to power was colorful and somewhat tragic, his reign in office will be equally as dramatic, and we are going to examine that 
and continue the story of the book of Samuel interspersed with the teachings of the Talmud next time. <laughs>